All right, good morning, you guys. Thanks for joining me. I love talking about young adults, um, so I'm excited to spend the morning with you. Um, let me just uh, pray for us, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for uh, this week at Family Camp. Thank you for just this space. Um, it feels just like a little uh, pocket of heaven in some ways where we get to just rest and be in your creation and spend time with you and with each other. And so I pray, God, that um, this time together, that it will be in a way that honors and glorifies the work that you're doing in many young adults today. And Lord, that um, you just give me the words that you want me to say for your glory and your purposes. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, well, again, my name is Kelsey, and um, I grew up coming to family camp, and so um, many people don't know this, um, but when I first was applying to be on summer staff after I had graduated from college, um, even though I, want, I love working with junior high, high school, and young adults, I applied to work at day camp because as a family camper, that was like the dream all my years growing up. And so in the interview, the person who was interviewing me was like, why are you applying for day camp when all of your experience, all of your passion is towards junior high, high school, and young adults? And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, and so fortunately, I had the insight to place me as a counselor for, for youth. And so I was up at Ponderosa. But I've, uh, this is my 12th summer on staff at Mount Hermon as summer staff, intern, assistant director. And then I've been the director for youth um, for the, this is my third summer. Um, but I grew up coming to family camp. And so I still remember being in childcare, like some of my earliest child, childhood memories is childcare and Pancake Ridge. Um, I have tons of lanyards that are still unfinished. I still think at one point I'm going to finish all of my lanyards, <laughs> but it's been years. Um, I remember all my day camp counselors' names. I have a note that one of the youth counselors wrote me. It's tattered and torn now because of the amount of time that I've opened and closed it. I carried it with me through college. Um, so I love the ministry that Mount Hermon, um, that God does through Mount Hermon, and especially family camp is like near and dear to my heart. I love this place. Um, so I'm the second of four kids. Uh, my parents were actually here at family camp last week and they secretively kind of like sat in the back during the seminar and I told them like just a heads up I talk about our family a lot in this <laughs> seminar and so they got to be kind of incognito kind of hear some of the stories and I'd already asked for their permission to make sure I could share things that they were okay with me sharing um, but I'm the second of four kids and um, my older sister she's married lives in Colorado with her um, her family and three kids. There's me, my younger brother, um, he's in the military, and then my youngest sister is actually on staff at Redwood this summer as Ragamuffin. And so um, my parents have told me that um, in the childhood years and then the teenage years and then the young adult years, they've told me that the young adult years were the hardest for them as parents um, because they just saw how the 20s are just so hard. And to see their kids, but now adults, struggling to try to find their way, struggling with faith, struggling with trying to make decisions and how to be an adult in today's world. And so they said childhood was exhausting. The teenage years were rough, the angsty, rebellious teenage years we all went through. But then they said, we are, they told me, we are so ready for our kids, for you, Kels, to be out of your 20s and just to have a little bit more settling in life. And so I'm not a parent. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a parent. Um, I don't know what it's like to, to have kids. And my mom has said it's like having your heart just like walking around on two feet around the world. Um, and so she's communicated in that way. I'm like, oh, I can kind of understand what you're, what you're getting at. And so for this morning, I'm not going to give you like four steps of what you should do. Um, I won't be able to speak from the parent perspective of what it's like to be a parent with a young adult. Um, I'll share with you some things that I've heard other people say. But my hope in our time is really just to set up conversations for you to continue to have. I'll give you, you know, some information. I'll kind of talk you through some things that I know and some things I've learned along the way, some things that my parents have done that were really helpful for me as a young adult. Um, I'll take some questions from you guys, but really my hope is that out of this, you'll have further conversations with each other, with any of the young adults in your life, um, if you have any young adult children, um, or if you are a young adult, just some ways that you can know uh, other people are going through maybe something similar with you. Um, so for young adults, um, there's right now the two generations of the millennials and the Gen Z, they're in what comprises young adults right now. Um, 
what's weird, and we're going to get to this, is no one really knows when young adulthood ends and real adulthood starts. <laughs> I think that's part of the problem that we're facing in our culture right now. Um, but in thinking of young adults being college, the rest of your 20s, maybe even into some early 30s, um, that would be millennials and Gen Z. And so to look at what has made up these specific generations and some of the, the characteristics of them, we also have to look at what are the generations that preceded them because they kind of build off of each other. And oftentimes, one generation will in some ways rebel to do something different than the generation before them because they want to be different. And so they all are kind of interconnected. And for any of the generations, oftentimes there's a little bleed over and so the younger millennials actually adopt a little bit more of the Gen Z traits. The older millennials actually um, adopt some of the Gen X traits. There's a little bit of bleed over, um, but we're gonna uh, kind of talk through all of those. So first we have the boomers. Boomers, Gen X, millennials, and then Gen Z. And so boomers would be anyone who was born in the years 1944 to 1964. Right now it's anyone in the age range of 55 to 75. Um, they were the generation after like, post-World War II. And so some of the traits of that generation is a post-World War II optimism, but then also the experience of the Cold War um, and what that was like during that season of fear in school, but in different ways, and the hippie movement. And so in that uh, generation, some of the things that um, really unexpectedly, this generation is experiencing a lot of financial um, debt in student loans which is really interesting to see the financial patterns of it as well. Um, they are setting up their children, and as they're 55 to 75, um, they're setting them up to be on the right course, but don't plan on leaving any inheritance. Um, so there's different financial patterns of each generation as well. Um, the boomers then led to Gen X. So Gen X would be anyone born between 65 to 1975, uh, sorry, 1979. It's the ages of 40 to 54 right now. Um, they, some of the uh, cultural moments that really um, set them up was the end of the Cold War, uh, the rise of personal computing, and oftentimes Gen X feels lost between the two big generations. People talk often about, oh, the boomers and the millennials. Gen X often feel a little lost in between, um, between those two. Um, Gen X is, they're trying to raise a family, pay off their student debt, and they're starting to take care of their aging parents. Um, they, uh, put a high they have a high strain on their resources based on trying to take care of their kids, aging parents, and student debt. So financially, they have um, specific things as well. They are a little bit more digitally savvy than some of the boomers um, in the rise of personal computing. So that's a Gen X. That then leads to millennials. Their technical term is a Gen Y, but they're known more predominantly as millennials. Um, and it's anyone that was born between 1980 to 1994, and so that current age range is 25 to 39. And so that's where it's like young adults, any of like the, the, the younger side of the millennials. The millennials are such a massive generation that they've actually um, broken them into like part A and part B. Because for some of them, like someone born in 1980, the rise of social media um, came more towards like college and post-college and the effects that it had on them. For someone born in 94, they were actually in high school with the rise of it. And so depending on, that's a pretty significant event of the rise of social media and internet. So millennials are actually broken into kind of two categories because the older millennials feel very different than the younger millennials and the younger millennials are a little bit more like Gen Z in some ways. Um, it's also referred to as the Gen Me. <laughs> the, uh, it's, unfortunately millennials, I'm a millennial, I'll confess. Um, it's uh, the narcissistic, tendencies. That's why it's called Gen Me, um, along with being the millennials. Um, the term millennial was actually written, it was kind of coined in 1989 by these two guys um, because of the impending turn of the millennium, Y2K. And so back in 1989, they knew this generation is going to be known for how big of a cultural event that was going to be of Y2K. And so that's why they are called the millennials. So some things that make up the millennials. Um, this generation is co extremely comfortable with mobile devices. Um, they have little patience for inefficiency and poor service because we're used to things, we can get it when we want. 
Thank you, Amazon. Um, some of the shaping events is the Great Recession, uh, the, theolog the technological explosion of the internet, and growing up in a world where that was just now a norm, and social media, as well as 9-11. It's a big cultural event that has shaped a lot of their life. Um, what's interesting is that this upcoming election will be the first time that there's a whole pool of voters who were not around during 9-11. And so how politically and like what they understand of the world and what their experiences and their views on things is actually affected with um, whether they experienced 9-11 in a personal way or not. Um, I remember, my, it was my freshman year, I remember going to school, I remember exactly what I was wearing, I remember my mom running up the stairs to tell my dad, having a family meeting, saying this is what's happening in the world right now, listening to the radio on our way to school, like I remember in detail that day, like the world is changing all of a sudden. Um, so 9-11 has a big shaping event for the millennial generation. Millennials are entering the workforce, and what we are finding with them is that they have a very high amount of student debt. Um, there is a sense of financial instability. And so for many millennials, they want to have the experience as opposed to ownership. So the thought of owning a home um, or being able to buy a house, that seems so far, far off in their mind because of the amount of financial strain they feel. All right, and then Gen Z. Gen Z is anyone born between 95 to 2015. And so right now, that's age four to 24. So it's a big span, but it'd be the, the older side of Gen Z are what would be our current young adults as well. Um, they're also nicknamed the I generation, post-millennials. Um, the average Gen Zer received their first mobile, mobile phone at the age of 10. Um, they grew up playing on their parents' tablets, though. Um, they live in a very hyper-connected world. Um, and they spend on average, I think it's actually more, but they say on average three hours a day just on their cell phone. Um, that's ages four to 24. Um, what's interesting is that uh, Gen Z is trending to be more financially and fiscally responsible because they're seeing the effects of financial strain on either the millennials or their parents, the Gen Xers. So what's interesting is Gen Z might turn out to be a little bit more financially responsible in some of the trends of that uh, generation because they've seen the effects of it and the strain and the stress of it. Um, so some shaping events for Gen Z. Um, smartphones, social media, how just part of their daily life. They've never known a country that's not at war. Um, and they've seen the financial struggles. And so what's really fascinating is I had someone a couple weeks ago after the seminar share um, some of the things that they're seeing, and especially millennials in, in Gen Z, is this trend of a lack of perseverance. Um, and there's so many choices in the world that if something doesn't make them happy or if they don't feel like they're thriving, they'll leave and they'll go try something else. And so we're seeing that in jobs, we're seeing that in school, we're seeing that in the church. Um, but this sense of there's so many options, you can find everything online, there's so many options for them that the thought of starting a career and building your way up in the same company is just a completely foreign thought to them of you do this for a couple years and then you'll jump over and start something new for a couple years and jump to something else. And so it's this sense of kind of this lack of perseverance. And I think it in some ways could also be tied to what we love, the participation award. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Students, uh, young adults are used to getting an award just for participating. And then they enter the workforce and realize you don't get a gold star just for showing up at work. And so when they don't feel like they're being valued or they don't feel like, oh, this is something where I'm being able to move my way up really, really quickly, then I'm gonna go find something else. And so it's this trend of a lack of perseverance. So we're seeing that in, again, work, um, in relationships, um, as well as um, in the church. And the, the parent who was talking to me after the seminar was saying, it seems like in the, the people want to volunteer at church and they're really passionate about it, but then as soon as it's kind of hard or it's a little inconvenient, they bail and do something else. And it's like, well, yeah, I think that's a, a, more, a bigger trend than just something within the church. Um, there's always more choice. 
And I think that that has a big effect in millennials and Gen Z. There's so many choices that um, it's really hard to narrow down to just making one. Um, one of the books that I'll recommend, it's a, a fascinating book. We use it in our intern program. I don't believe she's a Christian, um, or she doesn't write from a Christian perspective. I think she actually is one, but she doesn't write this as a Christian book. But it's a book called The Defining Decade, and it's um, by Dr. Meg J, J-A-Y. Um, it's called The Defining Decade, and it's about how, as a, as a therapist, she was seeing that so many people were they're using their 20s as almost this extended adolescence time, and then all of a sudden they turned 30, and they realized they didn't have their dream job, they didn't have money saved up to be able to buy a house, their friends were getting married, but they were still in a relationship they knew they didn't want to marry the person, and all of a sudden they were like, oh, I feel like all of a sudden I turned 30 and I haven't been ready for this. So they're backtracking and realizing that they've missed some opportunity. And so she spends the entire book talking about how you should be using your 20s to best prepare for the life that you want to have. And how um, she sect uh, sections it out to work, love and relationships, and then the brain and the body. And how even in your 20s, your brain and your body are still developing. And how what you choose to do or what patterns you establish in your 20s are ones that will continue to help in your development. So it's a fascinating book. But she talks about the, the jar theory. Of if you go to Costco and there are just too many options, people that go to Costco to buy a certain thing and then they try all these different samples for one thing that they need. Let's say that she uses the example of jam. I just need to come get jam. And if there's 20 different options, people will leave without buying jam because they're overwhelmed at the amount of choice. But if you set out six, they'll sample those six, and then they'll actually buy what they need. And so the, the process of having limited choices will actually help someone make a choice. Then if you give, you can do anything in the world, there's always young adults saying, I have too many choices, I'm just gonna do this over here because I can't make a choice. And so actually limiting the amount of choices that you have helps you actually make a decision, rather than thinking I can do whatever. So, an interesting book, I would highly recommend it. Um, my sister, she um, has a nine-year-old, and then soon to be twins who are six, um, they're soon to be six, they'll be six in a couple days. And she was telling me that recently she had been talking to other parents, and the term the helicopter parent um, is no longer necessarily what they're seeing, they're seeing the lawnmower parent, where they're paving the way for their student, their children to come after them. They're making it easy and nice and freshly cut, making it perfect for their children to come behind them. So I thought that was interesting. It's no longer a hovering parent, but it's a very involved parent who's doing all the work to set up for the students, but then the children behind them aren't learning the necessary hardships of what it looks like to have to try and to fail and to pick yourself up again. Um, again, I'm not a parent. I don't know what that must be like, but uh, I've, uh, learned a lot from learning from different parents in my life. All right, in adolescent development, um, what's really fascinating is that we've taken a season of adolescence and we've extended it, and then we've tacked on even more terms to it. And so adolescence, it's the root word for adolescere, which is Latin for to grow to maturity. So when we talk about adolescence, it's really just saying this is a, a season of your life where you are growing to maturity and the things that need to, you need to participate in and go through to become mature. So the key questions is adolescence starts in biology and you don't really have a choice in when that happens because puberty just kicks in <laughs> whether you want it to or not. And then it, adolescence ends in culture and the fact that it ends in culture isn't a good thing. But it's saying we as a culture are then defining when this adolescence season ends but we haven't, and so that's where we've now created extended adolescence and young adulthood and just lengthened this, this process. And so it starts in biology with puberty, it ends in culture, and there's confusion of what it means to be an adolescent and a young adult. So pre-1900, um, puberty was starting around 14, and then adulthood culturally would begin at 16. And so adolescence was about a one and a half to two year span of growing out of childhood, getting ready to become an adult. And so at 16, you were considered an adult in joining the adult force. In 1970, puberty was starting at age 13, and then adulthood was starting around 18, 
I think with um, being drafted and going into the military at age 18, I think that was culturally, uh, you're an adult at 18, you're out of the house. And so the season of adolescence was five years, from 13 to 18. Now, seven years ago in 2012, puberty was starting at age 11, between 11 and 12, so it's getting younger and younger. Um, some of that, a lot of people have a lot of research out there for um, whether it has anything to do with diet and um, also sexual activity. Um, so younger people are becoming more and more sexually exposed at a younger age than maybe they were years ago. So I think there's a lot of different factors to it, but puberty is starting much earlier than it used to. So in 2012, it was starting at age 11, and then adulthood was said to start in the mid-20s. How lazy are we? We didn't even define like when. It was just mid-20s. Somewhere in your 20s, you'll become an adult. And so the length of adolescence is all of a sudden 15 years. So at the time of 11 or 12, you start adolescence, and then at some time in your mid-20s, you'll become an adult. This is a big span of time for students, for teenagers, for young adults, saying, well, what am I supposed to do in this season? You're growing to maturity, and we're just lengthening the process for them. So when do we become adults? Um, on an aspirin bottle, it says that you take an adult dose at the age of 12. At the DMV, you get your license at 16. To be able to drink alcohol, culturally, that's a sign of you become an adult if you can culturally drink legally. It's 21. To go to a movie theater and to see whatever rated movie you want would be 13 or 17. To vote in the U.S. election is 18. To rent a car is 25. To be able to stay at a hotel by yourself would be 16. To serve in the military is 18. And then to fly as an adult is age two. <laughs> so, this is the, right? <laughs> so anywhere between two to 25, you're an adult. You can see where there's a the confusion of when am I an adult when everything is telling me these different ages and it seems somewhat, somewhat random. And so no one necessarily knows. People will often ask me, okay, you're the director of youth and young adult. Youth we get, what age group is young adult? <laughs> and for some reason we have the age 27. I don't know why. But I'm like, I think anyone like 28 isn't, they're not like cut off from the young adult program. It's really by their choice whether they want to be participants or not. But I'm like, that's part of the problem. No one knows when young adulthood ends and when people are now considered adults. So there's three stages of adolescence in this big length of time. There's three stages, early, mid, and late. And what's really interesting is that you go through a similar pattern of, um, of after you were born. So I'll get to that in a second. But the three main questions that need to be answered in adolescence, in this growth to maturity, these three questions of identity, who am I, who do I want to be, affinity, to what or to whom do I want to belong in this world, and then autonomy, what makes me unique, what do I have individually to offer the world. And so students are asking these questions of identity, autonomy, and affinity, and the process of maturity, to be able to grow to maturity, they have to be able to answer these questions. And that's a big uh, part of the process. Um, we, for any of our youth and young adult programs, we take these three questions and we look at what does the Bible say about our identity and our autonomy and our affinity? What does God say about how he's created us? What does he say about to whom do we belong? And then what does he, how has he uniquely gifted each of us and what does he give, what has he given us to offer to the world? So for students, we want to, we know that they're already asking these questions. So we purposely create programs that'll point them to scripture saying, this is what the Bible says about answering these questions in your life. Um, so for example, in 2013 up at Ponderosa, the summer theme is called Upside Down and we were studying the passage of Philippians 3.20 and 21 that says, but you are citizens of another kingdom and we eagerly await a savior from there. And so as for students to live, to learn how to live like you belong to another world. And so as answering that question of identity of like you belong to Jesus, you're part of his kingdom here on earth, so live like you belong to another world. And we study the entire book of Philippians over the course of the week to answer some questions about identity, but then also about affinity, like who do you belong to and how does that affect your life? Um, we wanna be able to answer these big questions as students are here. 
Um, puberty is one of the, it's the second most traumatic experience that your body will naturally go through in your lifespan. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, there's a lot of other trauma that our bodies will go through. Um, but naturally, there are two that, regardless of circumstances or where you're born, just naturally is part of your physio physiology, and that's when you're born, and that's when you go through puberty. And so when you're born, the span of being a newborn to a two-year-old, you go through a lot of growth in a very quick amount of time. A newborn who then learns how to sit up for themselves and then is crawling and then learning to walk, like that's a lot of growth all at once. And so what we see is that there are these two, after these big kind of traumatic experiences to your physiology, um, what follows mirrors itself. So here's the thing, so a zero to a two-year-old, they're in what's called the sampling phase. They are going around and sampling the world by touching everything, by putting everything in their mouth. They're just seeing everything for the first time, and they're sampling it in a way. Uh, my niece, Callie, when she was um, in this age range, she just loved to explore, was getting into everything, and so she'd go over to the light socket, and she was like licking the light socket, and we were like, no, and like pulling her away from it, but she was just trying to explore and sample everything in her life. Then a three to a seven-year-old, they're in the testing phase. They're asking why to everything. Do they, they just wanna know like, how does this world work? Why is this? My niece Kimball, when she was, I think, four, I was watching the show, this was years ago, the show Once Upon a Time, and she loved the show, and so she's sitting next to me, and she was just asking why to everything. Why is the princess sad? Why did the prince do that? Why did he say that? Why is her hair like this? Why is her dress blue? And I was like, dude, Kimball, just chill. <laughs> like, if you just watch, maybe it'll answer those questions. But she just wanted to know why to everything. She was kind of testing to understand how the world works. She was really fascinated at the time of, okay, so you're my aunt, because you're my mom's sister. Okay, my grandma is your mom. She was, like, was really fascinated of trying to like, connect the dots and like, understand her world. And then an eight to a 10-year-old, they're in the concluding phase. An eight to a 10-year-old, I think, are the most confident people on the planet because they just know how the world works. They know who their best friends are. They'll go out onto a playground and make best friends just on the spot. They know that they want to be an astronaut or a doctor or the president. They just like know what they want. And then those very confident eight to 10 year olds are then the insecure, timid junior higher stepping into middle school. Where did, what happened to that, little, that confident kid just a moment ago? And now they're these insecure junior hires. It's because they've now, they're going through that process just all over again. They go through sampling and testing and concluding all over again, but in a completely new body. <laughs> Puberty has happened. You have no control over it. All of a sudden, it's happening. The world that you like, understood and like yourself is just completely different. Your body is unfamiliar to you. Your clothes don't fit. All of a sudden, you smell. You have like, just weird like, facial hair and body hair going on. Like, your voice is deepening. There's just, it's chaotic, and it's no wonder they feel insecure because they, they don't know their, themselves anymore. Um, when I was in junior high, I had grown up playing a lot of soccer. I'm really, really familiar playing soccer, but I had my growth spurt. I was this tall by eighth grade, so very quickly became the tallest girl in the room. And I was trying to play a soccer game, an indoor soccer game, and I could not stay on my feet. And my parents and my coach were like, Kels, just tie your shoes, or like, what is going on? They're like, what's wrong with her? This is just a normal soccer game. I played, I don't know how many each week. And it was because I wasn't used to doing what I was so used to doing in a very tall body now. I couldn't, I didn't know how to manage my height because it happened so quickly. Um, so for our junior hires, they are now going through the sampling stage. And when I do this training with uh, staff for youth, for Ponderosa and Conference Center Youth, I tell them this is not meant to mean that you can now treat junior hires like they're toddlers. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> um, but to say they're experiencing the world in a new way and themselves and their, their new body in a similar way to a toddler is in the sense that everything is new and foreign and different. 
And so we see this actually play out with some of our junior high programs. One year at Ponderosa, um, this was a number of years ago, there was a student who ate a plant, and it was a poisonous plant. And so the student unfortunately then had a very strong physical reaction, had blisters all over their mouths. My boss at the time was on the phone with UC Davis Medical Center of like, we're trying to identify this plant and how to get the student help. And so my boss was asking the student like, what, were you put up to this? Was it a dare? Were you being bullied? Are you not getting enough food at camp that you're hungry? <laughs> you're like resorting to the foliage. <laughs> and um, the student was like, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> We're like, okay, um, they're literally sampling the world in a way. It doesn't make them dumb. It just means that they're, there's a lot that they're trying to better understand, and they're trying to understand their place in it, and they're sampling it in a way that feels unfamiliar and foreign. And then high school, they go into the testing phase. They're asking why. They're testing some boundaries. They're asking why to a lot of questions but they're also waiting to see what the response is. And what we see a lot, especially with students at camp, is, okay, you're gonna tell me that you're happy I'm here. You're gonna tell me that Jesus loves me. You're gonna tell me that you love me, but prove it when I act like this. Um, during an opening forum, for a junior high week, the opening forum at Ponderosa on Sunday night, they're just psyched to be there. They're just excited about literally everything at camp, and we just get to play for the week, which is really, really fun. When I come out to talk about the theme, to spend time with students on Sunday night for a high school week, it's this. <laughs> and I can see that some of them are like, okay, it looks kind of cool, like maybe this will be actually kind of fun. But we, take, we actually do a lot of programming on Monday and Tuesday at camp intentionally to break down those walls and for them to get to be silly and goofy and feel like they can play, but we have to chisel away at that. And they ask a lot of why questions, um, but it's in the sense of they're gaining, gaining experience, being abandoned and being rejected, and so they're testing in relationships are you also going to not be true to your word? Are you also going to leave me when I act like a punk? Are you also going to say that God loves me but then not show it in your actions? Um, I remember these moments when I was in high school. It was kind of like late junior high, early high school. And I was at Ross and I was trying on some different clothes, just a normal thing. But I remember what I was feeling at the time, and I was trying on, it was the Avril Lavigne era, so like the skater boy, like the, the uh, punk belt, and like the fun like graphic t-shirt, a lot of heavy eyeliner, and I was trying on just an outfit, and I remember having this conscious thought, that's it, this is who I am now. I'm going to get rid of all my clothes, and I'm gonna only buy this because this is now representing my true identity and who I want to be. Two days later, it was something else. <laughs> but at the time, it made total sense in my head of this is who I'm supposed to be. And what they're doing is they're trying on, high school students all the time are trying on these different hats. Their hats being their personalities, their behaviors, their vocabulary, their friend groups, their interests. They're trying on these different hats to try to figure out what feels right. Is this really me? Or no, this doesn't really feel like me, I'm gonna try something else instead. They're trying it on, but they're also not just trying to figure out what feels right to them, but they're watching other people's responses. They're watching adults' responses. They're watching their friends. Do more people like me when I'm wearing this? Or, nope, it doesn't seem like they like it, so I'm going to try something different instead. So they're trying on these different personalities and hats to test who they want to be and what interests they want to have. And so then those testy, High school students then go to the concluding stage um, as they get later on into high school and then go off to college and they start making conclusions. And that's a really good thing for them to start to make conclusions of answering those questions of identity, affinity, and autonomy. Who do I want to be? Um, one of the things that is the hardest though, and what I say to summer staff often, is it is good to make conclusions, but to stay teachable. And I think there are many, especially in the younger, young adult years, are starting to make some conclusions, but in a, I know exactly how the world works, and this is who I'm gonna be, and I know how everything should be. And then they exit from college and be like, oh, I have even more that I need to learn. 
And so oftentimes the most frustrating internally, like the moments when I just want to like cringe and be like, oh, those moments aren't with the junior high, high school students, it's with young adults, summer staff and interns. Um, and it's when they lack a sense of teachability. When it's, I've spent in the last year in college and for six months I took a class and I've learned so much about this and I think our culture is just awful at this and the church is just completely unheard of in doing all of these things. I've learned this, if anyone wants to learn from me, I would love to tell you and to help educate you. Literally some of those comments were verbatim, something I got just a month ago in staff training. And I just kind of smiled and was like, <sighs> okay, <laughs> deep breaths. I'm happy you're here. <laughs> and then we'll often say to them, these are great. You are passionate. You're making conclusions of things that you're like, this needs to change in our world. These are great conclusions to make and remember that you'll never fully arrive. There's always more to learn and to stay teachable that you have other things to learn while you're offering your gifts to the world too. So in junior high, oftentimes what's most important to them is what are we doing? They're wanting to know a lot of what's. For high school, a lot of meaning is developed through relationships and who's gonna be there. They, de they determine a lot of their meaning based on who they're friends with. For young adults, it's for purpose through being able to answer why. They want to have purpose and to have significance and they're ready to be able to have to have that. And so there's a lot of uh, meaning developed being able to answer why to some of their big questions. And so we develop in each of our um, programs for junior high, high school, and young adults based around those questions. For junior hires, we pack it full of tons of activities because they're always asking, what are we doing next? For high school, we set up opportunity for them to meet other people who have the same interests as them. Who's going to be there? Let me meet other people who share the same interests as me. And for young adults, it's just giving them time and space to be able to answer some of these big why questions and to learn from each other as they are making some conclusions. Um, so within all of that, again, I told you guys that the, the, one of the best books that I've read so far has been Defining Decade. There's another one. Um, I think it's one of the best leadership books that I've read in a while. And it's called Extreme Ownership. And it's by um, two Navy SEALs, uh, Jocko Willink and then Leif Fabin. Um, it's called Extreme Ownership. It is about um, warfare and military, but it's not a book necessarily about that. They just use their experience as Navy SEALs in the war of, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq. They use the experience of what they learned on the battlefield and realize like, the leadership principles that were needed in some of these crazy situations they encountered, but then realize that the principles they were learning translate into business and into just life. And so that's what the book is about. But I always kind of give a disclaimer to people um, in looking at it because they do talk about the war, they talk about their life in the military, there is some explicitness to it. Um, and so just to, everyone has a different view of the military and the war and everything like that. But it's not a book about that, it's more about the leadership principles they learned from it. So it's a great book because I think uh, the topic of ownership is a big piece of what's missing in our conversations right now with young adults, especially those who have grown up having the participation award just handed to them. Um, and you know, even the fact that we call it adulting, uh, I just can't adult right now. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out this whole adulting thing. It's like, we've taken the process of like adolescence and growing to maturity and just created a verb for it of adulting. And I think one of the biggest parts of that at the root of it is learning to take responsibility for yourself and to take ownership. And so rather than expect others to pave the way for you, to expect others just to have things like land for you, like what are you going to do to take ownership of your life? What are things that you, like for myself, what are things that I'm gonna take ownership of as who I am, but then also within my work? And how there's always something that I can be doing to take better ownership of a situation. And so I think that topic of ownership, I think it's really at the root when we're talking about learning to be an adult and the process of adulting. I think it's really about how are we taking ownership of our lives and how are we setting up young adults to take ownership. Um, a couple of things that my parents, um, that were really influential moments for myself <coughs> with my parents, um, were that they created these kind of capstone moments, um, some really formal and some more informal, 
in junior high, high school, and young adult. And so in junior high, before I started puberty, my mom would take myself and um, myself for away for a weekend. She did this with all my sisters, and then my dad did it with my brother. And she took us away on a weekend and like basically walked me through, this is what you're going to experience when you go through puberty. We're going to go get you some new clothes. We're going to go get you some um, anti-acne uh, facial cleansers. We're going to get you some makeup and some deodorants and all the things that you might need as your body is about to change. And I remember being uncomfortable and like being excited to have time with my mom, but also being like, oh man, we ha I just want to be a kid. Do I really have to like talk about these adult things? And I just didn't really want to, but she did that. So I felt ready for when puberty kind of hit. My dad then took me when I was in high school on a date to teach me this is how a man should treat you, how he should respect you, and this is what it looks like to show respect um, between the opposite sex. And so my mom then went on a date with my brother, and so they kind of traded with each other. When I was a young adult, when I started as an intern at Mount Hermon, it was one of the first paychecks I was going to be getting. And so I went home to my parents' house just for a weekend. And while I was there, my mom took me around town and put everything in my name. My car insurance, my cell phone, um, changing like my permanent address. And it was kind of an, an informal. It wasn't like this big celebratory thing, but it was more like, hey, you're home for a weekend. Let's go do all of these things because now you're making money. And so it's now your responsibility to take ownership of your life and create a budget. And these things are going to be in your name, so you need to pay the bills. And it was, I didn't realize at the time that that was such a good moment to feel kind of set up as you're now an adult. So start taking care of yourself. Um, there was a moment a number of years ago um, when my... Um, and two different stories going on at the same time in my head. Um, I saw a counselor for a number of years. I saw a therapist, um, a Christian one. And again, I know everyone has different views of Christianity and therapy and, and how the two kind of go hand in hand. But for myself, that was something that I recognized I needed for my own health. And I was nervous to tell my parents because I wasn't sure what they were going to think of it. Um, they showed a lot of support. And so I saw a counselor for about four years. And during that time in my 20s, um, it was probably one of the best things I did as an adult, to be honest. Um, I, I know it's not for everybody, but for myself, choosing to go process some really hard things in life and to talk about it and to do the work was actually one of the best adult decisions I've made. And so um, when I was going through that, they were talking to me, um, the counselor, a lot about my family and my extended family, and there was just a lot going on in my extended family at the time. And there was one uh, family member who was gonna come live with my parents. And I was really, really upset that they were going to come live with my parents. It, I had a good relationship with this family member. It wasn't like something bad had happened. It w wasn't anything like that. It was more of the sense that my family and our home was gonna change. And so my parents, making a decision that was really hard for them, but in a way of representing Jesus and being hospitable and having this family member stay, they were doing the right thing. But in my angsty 20s, and my family life, my home life changing, I was not about it. And so when I went home for one weekend, I had a conversation with my parents, and I was emotional, and my mom just listened to me as I told her all reasons why I didn't want them to make this decision. She brought my dad into the room, and so we all had a conversation, and it was a hard one, but it was, again, a capstone moment where I felt like, wow, I'm able to talk about these things with my parents, and I feel like I have graduated from the kids' table <laughs> And I now have a place at the adult table to have these conversations with my parents. And so looking back on it, I wish I had done some things differently to like better honor my parents and the fact that they were making the right decision to care for a family member. But I am really glad that I did at least speak up about it. And it felt like it was a graduating moment to have a space to sit with them at the adult table um, for them to recognize that I will always be their kid but I'm no longer a kid's age as a young adult. And then for me to recognize what does it look like as a young adult to participate in my family, rather than just to kind of run away from it, but to have and to choose to have some of the harder conversations with my family. So a lot of it came down to just communication. Another um, uh, story was I, I went home, this was only a couple years ago. Um, I think my mom got a kick out of this when she was sitting here just a week ago. but. I went home for a weekend, and for some reason, a bill of mine, rather than getting mailed here to my address, it was mailed to my parents. And so my mom had seen it, and she was like, oh, Kelsey, like, here's, here's some of your mail. 
and um, it was a bill that was due, and so she kept, she kept asking me, like, is there anything I can do to help? Like, do you want me to drop it off at the post office? And it was like a couple days goes by, and I'm like, no, mom, I'll take care of it. No, mom, I'll take care of it. So days are going by, and she keeps asking, and I'm starting to get frustrated, because I'm like, I pay my bills on a regular basis, just the fact that you're seeing this one. I get mail all the time at, at home. I, I eat salads, I take care of myself, and, but it was this moment where I just felt like, oh, can you just let me be an adult and take care of myself and stop trying to take care of it for me? So I knew, it was like, that was my, my honest thought toward my mom, and I was like, I know that she's trying to help me, so me being frustrated isn't gonna help our communication. So I went and had a conversation with my mom, and um, it's just like, I just don't feel like you're respecting me as an adult by trying to take care of this and continuing to bring it up. If I say I'm going to take care of it, can you just trust that I'm going to take care of it? And she's like, yeah, but I'm going to see that you then have to pay a fine for it being late. I'm just trying to help. I don't want you to have to pay a late fee. And I was like, well, maybe that's how I have to learn. And so we had this good moment. <laughs> um, but then here's the thing, like, my mom, she was like, all right, you're right. You are an adult. I'm going to let you, like, even if you have to pay a fine, that's frustrating, but here you go. And she said, but Kels, I would be really interested to see what your response would be if you have a kid one day. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yep. <laughs> and so it was such a good moment for me of, like, learning how to have that conversation with my mom and to say, like, hey, can this would be really appreciative to me of a way that you could show me respect as an adult and when I come home, but it was really good for me to learn, wow, I don't know what it's like to be in her shoes. I don't know what it's like to literally give birth to something and to take care of it, and then to set it free and let it like make its own decisions without being able to like choose those decisions for it. I don't know what that's like, and I realize like, wow, I think my mom has a perspective on this that I don't have, and I can respond to her a little bit more graciously. Um, when I'm speaking up to her in these things. So really, when it came down to it, any of the moments that have been really important for me with my parents as a young adult have been the conversations. And rather than running from the conversations or choosing just to not go home because it's too hard, to lean into it, but then also my parents leaning into it with me as well. And so as my therapist kind of pointed out, it's like everyone in a family learns how to do a dance. Everyone knows the routine and everyone knows their part and who comes in when. And then all of a sudden, as a child becomes an adult, they might want to do uh, something different in the dance. And it takes everyone relearning because it's kind of rocking the boat for a second and you have to kind of relearn it. And so it takes flexibility as a family to figure out how to flex and to relearn the dance together. For my youngest sister, she grew up as a baby of the family, carted around to every soccer game, every karate tournament, all these different things. And so she was always just kind of like along for the ride with all of her <laughs> older siblings. So when she went away to college and then came back for either family holidays or even just like family dinners, we were so used to just chiming in the five of us. And all of a sudden she would speak up and say something. And it was a little bit of a startle factor of, oh, there's someone new here. <laughs> and it was for us to recognize, okay, she's no longer the baby of the family. She is an adult. She's having her own experiences. She has her own thoughts and opinions. And we need to make space at the adult table for her to be able to join in and for us to relearn the dance together. And so in all of that, um, I think the communication and being flexible with each other as friends, as family, I think that has is a helpful tool to help initiate people into young adulthood, as well as setting whatever those capstone moments are, of being able to kind of celebrate, you're now a young adult, or you're now an adult, like whatever age that is. And I think that's up to like the family and whatever group that you're in to kind of set what you'd want that to be to initiate them into adulthood. So I have a couple last comments, but I want to give room for any questions. So, um, and then we'll have lunch right around 12.30. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, Jocko, J-O-C-K-O, Jocko Willink, W-I-L-L-I-N-K, Jocko Willink, and then Leif Babin, it's L-E-I-F, and then Babin, B-A-B-I-N. Yeah, I babysat for Jocko and his wife uh, for their 
kids when I was a student in San Diego. And so it was years later that the book came out and that's how I first became aware of it because I recognized the name. Um, and uh, the scariest man I've ever seen in my life, he looks like he was chiseled out of marble, but that's uh, Jocko Willing. He has a TED talk and he's uh, started, a, uh, it's called Echelon Front. It's like a business uh, consulting. Um, and so he has a lot of uh, like TED Talks and podcasts right now, but he's excellent to listen to and just leadership principles, but scary man, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good. Um, you know, I think the trend that I've seen or I've experienced is... Um, I think women have wanted, this is going to be very generalized, um, but there have been many women who have wanted to, um, I think, be able to have it all in some ways, and be able to have the uh, career and family and um, to be able to have positions of leadership. And so I think because it's been, in some ways, a harder road um, in some of the cultural things that have kind of blocked that, um, I think that they've become a little uh, more vocal about wanting to achieve that, and so that because they've had to, in some cases, work a little harder to get there. But I also see that by doing that, in some ways, we've uh, demasculated <laughs> or emasculated um, men in the process. Um, I spoke at a conference a couple months ago, and it was a women's perspective of being in camping ministry. And so it was myself and two other women, and two other women who were um, a little bit older than I am. And it was really fascinating to hear their experience, just in Christian camping ministry. Their experience was vastly different than mine, where they had a role at camp, but they weren't being paid because their husband was the one that was in the paid position. Um, that they were in like a co-director role, but were never recognized in that way. So m for myself, I spoke to the example of, I've had men and women celebrate my growth in leadership. And so I've, I've been set up well. So it's not something that I um, have experienced firsthand, but I recognize that other women have who are older than me. Um, what I, and I was just talking to someone about this yesterday, I don't think we're doing either one well. I don't think that um, the phrase, I am woman, hear me roar, should be at the expense of putting down men. And I don't think some of the examples of the ways that men have mistreated women are right either. So what I shared at that conference is, both of us are made in God's image, and we're not giving room of honoring the other person right now, or the other the other part of God's image while we're here on earth. And so I think women should, in their language of saying, I want to be able to offer these gifts to the world, and I also want to do it with the men that I'm on a team with. And it would be great for men to do the same, of I have these gifts to offer to the world, and I want to do it with women, because together we represent God's image. And I think us putting each other down, or emasculating men, or rising up women, I don't think either are fitting in the kingdom of God. Um, I think we need each other, and I think we need to honor each other in our differences as well as in our similarities. And our biggest similarity is that we're both made in God's image. And I feel like that's a pretty key part of the conversation culturally and within the church that's missing right now. Um, but I know that that's a, a very touchy, and for some right reasons, a very touchy subject right now. Um, but people will come up to me and say, you should have more women speakers on stage. And in the same weekend, I'll have people come up and be like, we are so relieved that you don't have any female speakers at Ponderosa. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting both in the same weekend. Um, so I have seen the trend of, it's actually a, a nationwide, there's been these, um, these searches of trying to understand why is it difficult to get guys to come work at camp. We're always lacking uh, guy applicants. We have way more female applicants. And that's just not a Mount Hermon thing. That's like a nationwide thing that they're trying to figure out. Um, I think in some ways there could be a thread of um, how prevalent gaming 
is to young men as opposed to not as many women. It's not, that's a generalized statement, but gaming and um, an escape from reality is much more prevalent to men these days than it is to women. And so even just in looking at how people are spending their time, um, I think that that is a piece to consider of why is it that many men are wanting to escape their reality in a gaming world, but then it's giving all this room for women to take their place in different ways. So I think there's a lot of research out there. Those are just some of the things that I've seen and experienced myself, but I think there's a lot of research out there to try to better understand why is it that there's this rise of women but at the expense of men and how, we, how can we as the church address that in a healthy way? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I had that question um, last week as well. You know, I, what's interesting is um, I think the rise in tattoos would have been a number of years ago, but it used to be more of the rebellious thing to do, and you're a little bit more hard-edged if you had tattoos, and now those people who were the ones getting the tattoos are now in the, the adults um, and the parents, and, and so it's interesting to see that um, even just culturally within certain jobs, it is a little bit more culturally appropriate, or you can have the tattoos in your job, you don't have to keep them always covered. And I'm wondering if that's because the hiring managers are now the ones who got tattoos when they were younger <laughs> and, um, and needing to kind of make that. Um, I think it does come back to um, choice um, and everyone's value right now, being able to choose who you want to be um, and how that plays out into um, people choosing what gender they want to be, choosing what uh, sexual orientation they want to have, choosing even just like physically how you, how you look and wanting to alter different things. So I think it does play into a little bit of just choice and just the, the amount of choice that we have in today's world and the celebration and the, um, the internal value that people want to have their choice. And especially in America, if, if we don't have choice, we feel like that's ingrained in our like nationality too of um, our freedom for everything. So I think it's all kind of muddled together in, in that. But I think it's a, a way of personal expression. And so um, as people are wanting to change their hair color, change their eye color, change different things, I think having a tattoo is another way of being able to express yourself in a way that will make you unique and different. Um, what's really interesting is to note there are certain symbols that people might have in their tattoos that represent who they are. So I love, students will come up to me often and ask about my tattoos. And this one in particular is because of a very significant moment that God had in my life a number of years ago where he answered a very specific prayer and I wanted the reminder that God hears my prayers and I wanted it to be in a place where I would like see it often. Um, so I'm not saying that I tell students, I'm not giving you license to go get a tattoo. <laughs> like that's something for you to work out with your parents. But for myself, it was something where I wanted a permanent reminder because I forget so often. Um, but there are other symbols that people have, like a semicolon. If you see someone who has a semicolon on their body, um, it's someone who has struggled with suicide and that they have chosen to live rather than to put a period on their life. And so a semicolon is there was a moment where I thought about ending that sentence, but I decided not to. And so the semicolon has become a, a symbol of someone choosing to live. And so if you see some different symbols on people's bodies, sometimes it gives you just a, a better understanding of maybe a part of their story. Um, but I, even just a couple of weeks ago, had someone say, well, what is, the Bible says a lot in the Old Testament about tattoos and marking your body. And I was like, yes, it does. And I haven't studied it well enough to give a, an educated answer in that way. Um, so with tattoos being more culturally appropriate, I really think it's just tied to the desire for choice and for self-expression and how that's celebrated in today's culture. So, yeah, of course. Any other questions? All right, well, I wanna make sure that everyone has time to get to lunch, but I'll stay for a little bit if you have any questions for me. But the one thing that oftentimes people will say is it feels like the younger generation is just like, just a hot mess. 
And yeah, and people will say often like, ah, what is the church going to look like 15 years, 20 years from now, where the current Gen Zers are going to be the ones in leadership positions in the church? Like, what is that going to look like? And what I will often say is, I wish that you could see what happens in Forest View Meeting Room for Family Camp Youth. I wish you could see what happens in a forum up at Ponderosa, where hundreds of students and young adults are passionately loving Jesus and taking steps closer to him. And so I have great hope um, that God is doing incredible work through youth and young adults, and that he has a lot in store for setting these young adults up. They're already the church, but to continue being the church as they get older. And so know that I have a lot of hope. Um, the world has always been a messy, broken place. Just looks a little different than it did a couple years ago, but we serve a faithful God, and so he's going to take care of us. So if you have any other questions, I'll stay back. But thank you for joining me this morning.